Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are now actually tuned into our Citation Classics. This is something new that we have started in 2022, and we hope you all enjoyed our, our first episode with Spine, but now we're actually going to talk a little bit about trauma and uh, we have a, a good a great episode in store uh, for you all today now let me just give you all a little bit more background of who all is going to be featured on this episode and kind of spearheading this trauma citations classics now first we have dr brown who is a second year resident at duke university medical center uh, he is awesome doing a great job we also have uh, nicholas todd a third year medical student at edward via College of Osteopathic Medicine in Virginia. We have Bree, who is a third-year medical student at the University of New England College of Osteopathic Medicine. We also have Olu, who is finishing up his school at medical school at St. George's School and currently applying to orthopedic surgery residency. And they talk a little bit about damage control orthopedics, everybody's favorite trauma topic. So, you know, if you are new to the channel, know that we have our YouTube videos that you can go and check if you want to actually look at some of the slides and see exactly what they are talking about. If you just if you're just more of a visual person, you can click the YouTube videos and check them out. But without further ado, enough of me talking. Go ahead and hit the subscribe button and enjoy this episode. And today's sponsor for the episode is going to be Convey MD. Convey MD is a podcast platform designed specifically for medical education. And what makes Convey MD unique is number one, they offer only medical podcasts for medical professionals. And there are 25 channels for just orthopedics, including, of course, Nailed It Ortho. Uh, number two, for some podcasts, listeners can view images like slides, x-rays, show notes, and transcriptions while listening, and they can download content for future reference. So you can check out some of the notes from this episode on there. And number three, they offer CME podcasts from groups like the Orthopedic Trauma Association. And then hopefully here at Nailed It, we're actually going to be looking forward to partnering with Convey MD on some future CME episodes as well. It is a free download in the App Store, and we've included a link in the show notes. So download it today and let us know what you think. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. All right. Uh, hello and welcome to our, our first Citations Classics. So we got a little team together that is going to take you through some various uh, papers over the course of the next uh, several months. Uh, my name is Matt Brown. My name's Nick Todd. My name's Brie Parity. And my name's Olu. Right on. So that, that's the crew. Um, in this segment, we're, we're going to try to remove, review uh, foundational orthopedic literature and kind of boil it down to how the paper has influenced the field. And also trying to highlight exactly what the paper did and sometimes what it did not say. We hope to present it in a, an accessible way and to provide some general background to help understand where the paper fits into orthopedics as a whole. We figured a better way to start all this off by uh, discussing the evolution of orthopedic care of trauma patients. We all know that ATLS was invented and slash championed by an orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Steiner, 
Now we want to dive into how the approach of fracture fixation has evolved over the years from early total care to damage control orthopedics to early appropriate care in a, in, in a kind of two-part series. We'll start off with development of early care to damage uh, of early total care to damage control orthopedics, and with some discussion of the underlying physiology along the way. All right, here we go. Uh, quick, just idea of how we got to these papers. We identified them through the Orthopedic Trauma Association, the Evidence-Based Medicine Resource List, as well as kind of want to make sure that we're touching on important papers that are tested, of course. So we, we utilized Orthobold's most commonly tested literature for that, as well as searching PubMed and various um, paper databases for our most cited papers on the topics. Some important uh, background just on trauma patients and, and when we're talking about trauma things that are gonna come up briefly about the injury severity score. This is something that we use to tell basically how severe the injury is and it's a score. It's pretty self-explanatory, but uh, at least the title is. It separates the body into six different body regions. It grades the injury based on a six point system. Um, these are, each injury pattern is kind of, is evaluated by a group of traumatologists uh, and it gives guidance on how to grade them. And then on our little example in the corner, we can see we have a, of our four body parts. One is a one, a three, a two, and a three. You square and add the three largest values, which in this instance would give us a injury severity score of 20, which is important because it gives us that this is now classified as a major trauma. And this is a severity score, the injury severity score does give us information. It has a, a correlation with uh, mortality and morbidity. Another important thing is the triad of death uh, and uh, for trauma. And this is hypothermia, coagulopathy, and hypoperfusion slash metabolic acidosis. This is going to come up a lot over the course of this discussion. Um, this the presence of this triad results in higher mortality rate. And these things warn us the patient is in danger. All right, so the background for orthotrauma. So just in general, in the 1960s, which you'll see in some of these papers, it kind of mentions all this, but an immediate stabilization was associated with higher mortality. Um, it was linked to fat embolism from fracture fixation. And this was in the setting of ICU care that was really early. It was not well established. There wasn't great experience with uh, me mechanic, me mechanized ventilation. Uh, as well as medical stabilization and optimization. Uh, and so often fixation was delayed and, and was treated in for traction. So people were sitting in bed for 10 to 14 days, not moving, um, which is not great. Uh, and in fact, Kunstler himself uh, advocated waiting. And uh, for those that don't know, Kunstler was a man who actually is credited with inventing the intermedullary nail um, in, the, in Germany. And he says, do not wait while symptoms of fat embolism exist. There are special, take special precautions in multi-trauma patients and do not nail immediately. Wait a few days, a few days. So this takes us to our first paper. All right, hi everybody. Uh, my name is Nick and I'll be presenting the early versus delayed stabilization of femur fractures. This is by Dr. Lawrence Bone. Uh, this was published in 1989 in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. So let's get and jump right into it. Um, in order to do that, we have to back up a little bit, back to 1957, kind of set the stage uh, for what was going on to led Dr. Bone to do his initial research. 
1957, we established uh, there was a connection between long bone fractures and fat embolism syndrome. Uh, and then moving forward a little bit in 1975, two researchers, uh, Riska and Millinen, they found that the early management of long bone fractures uh, was found to decrease the incidence of fat embolism syndrome. So these studies were all retrospective. Uh, Dr. Bone and his, his colleagues wanted to perform a prospective randomized control study, uh, primarily looking at time. So he was, he was curious if stabilization of these long bone fractures uh, within 24 hours would decrease the incidence of pulmonary complications uh, and ARDS, acute, pulmonary, acute respiratory distress syndrome, uh, when we compared that to stabilization after 48 hours. So let's talk a little bit about the populations. So this was a single center study. This is in Parkland Memorial Hospital in Dallas, Texas. The ages of the participants were anywhere between 16 to 75 years old. There were 178 total people in the study uh, and ground level falls and people 65 years and older were excluded from the study. So let's talk about how we set this up. So again, this is a prospective randomized study the only thing that he was uh, controlling here was the femur fracture stabilization time. So all other urgent procedures were performed as needed. So basically Dr. Bone took people with an acute femur fracture and he divided it into two groups. Uh, they were either randomly assigned to the early stabilization group, uh, which is he defined as less than 24 hours or the late stabilization group as greater than 48 hours. So he has these two groups early and late, and then he further divided them again into an isolated femur fracture or someone who's multiply injured with a femur fracture. And he defined this as an ISS less than 18 for an isolated femur fracture. And people who are multiply injured had an ISS greater than 18. So I know that was a lot, but basically he had four groups, either early or late stabilization, isolated femur fracture or multiply injured with a femur fracture. So the things he looked at, um, he looked at the incidence of fat emboli syndrome, which he defined as altered mental status, decreased uh, arterial O2 sats or chest X-ray with an infiltrate. He also looked at the incidence of pulmonary failure, ARDS, pulmonary dysfunction, abnormal arterial blood gases. And he also looked at hospital cost and hospital stay length. So let's dive into the results a little bit. So first thing we're gonna look at is um, hospital stay and then the average hospital cost. So let's compare the, the two early groups to start. So if we look at the people with early stabilization of an isolated femur fracture versus those with a late stabilization isolated femur fracture. So we're just looking at early versus late and an isolated femur fracture. So the hospital stay length changed from seven days to 10 days in the early group versus the late group. Uh, they had a very similar ISS of about 11, and the hospital cost uh, changed from about $5,000 to about $7,000. And this is relative to uh, 1989, so keep that in mind in terms of the uh, cost. So then if we look at the late stabilization, uh, multiply injured, and the early stabilization, multiply injured. So let's look at the average hospital days for that. So the early stabilization, multiply injured patient, 
stayed in the hospital on average 17 days versus the late stabilization, multiply injured, stayed for about 27 days. So quite a difference there. The hospital cost also went up from $20,000 to about $33,000. So quite some big differences between just the two early and late groups. So let's move on and talk about uh, some of the medical complications, particularly the uh, respiratory complications. So again, we'll look at the two early groups and then the late groups in the isolated and uh, multiply injured. So in the early stabilized isolated femur fracture versus the late stabilized isolated femur fracture, the total incidence of pulmonary complications went up from five people to 14 people just in the early and late group. And then we look at the early stabilized multiply injured, late stabilized multiply injured, uh, the total incidence of pulmonary complications went up from 16 to 50. So quite a big change there. Something I also wanna point out, uh, the late stabilized multiply injured group had the highest incidence of ARDS, uh, had six, six people with ARDS compared to almost none in any of the other groups. Same thing with pulmonary dysfunction, fat emboli. The incidence of abnormal blood gases in the late stabilized multiply injured patient was 33, much higher than any of the other groups. Uh, if we compare it to the early stabilized multiply injured, the abnormal blood gases incidence was only 15. So we about doubled it when we went to um, late stabilization versus early in the multiply injured patient. So let's uh, sum all that up. I know that was a lot of words, so let's uh, get it into just a few uh, key takeaways. So stabilization of fractures within uh, greater than 48 hours, the delayed treatment group uh, had a significantly higher incidence of pulmonary complications, longer hospital stay, and more days in the ICU. So when we combine uh, medical management with early stabilization of long bone fractures, we see a significant reduction in the rate of uh, pulmonary failure, things like ARDS, pneumonia, and fat embolism. So this study uh, really was key in influencing a shift in the treatment um, approach termed early total care, where orthopedists strove to provide final fixation early in order to prevent these pulmonary complications and a longer ICU stay. And that is all we have for Dr. Bone's paper. Thank you all for listening. I'll send it back to Matt. All right. And so I wanted to take a second and just talk about some of the limitations of this paper. And like, like Nick was highlighting and did an awesome job there, um, was this was evaluating treatment of less than 24 hours from injury and greater than 48 hours from injury. It gives us a very <clears throat> nice uh, separation of treatment, but it also doesn't give us an idea of maybe some of the smaller incremental differences for patients, well, let's say 12 hours at 24 hours at 36 hours at 48 hours. And so, I mean, this is definitely by far the best paper we had at the time and some very striking results. And so it, it really did push um, a change in treatment to this early total care where we're trying to get stabilization uh, and intramedullary nailing as soon as, as, soon as we could. Um, but it perhaps gives us an incomplete picture that deserved continued in investigation. And in fact, that's what we see um, set, uh, after the 1990s and into the 2000s. Uh, surgeons noted a trend in pulmonary injury in patients that were treated in a, in a very acute period in certain patients. And that led us, and that leads us to our second paper. Uh, it's kind of a culmination of uh, a lot of those investigations and, and one of the, the strongest papers we have kind of looking at this timeline. And uh, they'll hopefully be able to give us a better insight into some of those um, 
various timelines that we have. Thanks, Matt. I'm Bree, and I'll be reviewing uh, Dr. Morshed and colleagues' 2009 paper, Delayed Internal Fixation of Femoral Shaft Fracture Reduces Mortality Among Patients with Multisystem Trauma. So just to give a little bit of background about this study, previous studies have shown an increased morbidity and end organ injury with early internal fixation of these types of fractures uh, within 24 hours of admission. Um, and they found that that's mostly due to systemic hypoperfusion and inflammation. So based on these previous studies, Dr. Morshed and his colleagues developed this retrospective cohort study that we'll be talking about today, essentially to determine the optimal timing for internal fixation of femoral shaft fractures in patients with multi-system trauma. So two of the major trauma scoring systems used in this study included the abbreviated injury scale and the injury severity score, which Matt talked about earlier. The abbreviated injury scale is an anatomically based injury severity scoring system that classifies each injury by a body region on a six point scale, with one being a minor injury and six being maximal injury or currently untreatable. The abbreviated injury scale is used to determine the injury severity score of a patient with multiple injuries. And the injury severity score is essentially a scoring system that assesses the combined effects of patients with multiple injuries on a one to 75 point scale based on the abbreviated injury scale. So this system correlates with the mortality, morbidity, and other measures of severity. And it's calculated as the sum of the squares of the abbreviated injury scale code in the three most severely injured injury severity scoring system body regions. And you can see an example of this in the top right-hand corner of the screen. Um, essentially, you're looking at the chest, extremity, pelvis, and external regions of the body um, have the highest scores, which bring that out to an injury severity score of 26, which would place this example patient in a severe category. So the study population for um, Morshed and All's study included 3,069 multi-system trauma patients over a five-year period from the National Trauma Data Bank. And this draws from 567 US trauma centers. Patients were included in the study if they were multi-system trauma patients 16 years of age or older with internal fixation of a femoral shaft fracture and an injury severity score of greater than or equal to 15. The median age of the patients was 32 years old with about 72% of these patients being male. The most common traumas at the time of admission included closed C2 fracture, pulmonary contusion, lumbar vertebral fracture, and intertrochanteric fracture. So the patients isolated for this study were divided into five groups based on time to treatment of femoral shaft fracture with cut points including within 12 hours, 12 to 24 hours, 24 to 48 hours, 48 to 120 hours, or greater than 120 hours after admission. And they categorized early treatment as patients treated within 12 hours to represent those with the potential to be inadequately resuscitated in a, in a state of hypoperfusion. And the goal of this study was to determine the effect of time to definitive fixation 
in the setting of multi-system trauma, with their primary outcome being in-hospital mortality. And diving into the results a little bit. So the results from this study revealed that the highest mortality of all patients were those managed within 12 hours of admission. And they found that there was a 50% reduction in risk of mortality when treatment occurred between 12 to 24 hours and greater than 48 hours versus those treated within those first 12 hours of admission. And that can be seen as indicated by the red boxes in uh, the graph to your right on the screen. Interestingly enough, they found that there was a non-significant reduction in mortality when treatment occurred between 24 to 48 hours. And then due to similar mortality risk among the groups treated after 24 hours, they wanted to look at the effect of mortality based on the four body regions, um, comparing either the presence or absence of severe injury with fracture fixation before or after 12 hours of admission. And you can see this in figure three on the right. And they used a p-value of 0.2 uh, because there was difficulty in detecting complex interactions. So they used less than 0.2 as their uh, effect modification significance value. So the two circled graphs uh, shown on the right show a significant reduction in mortality for delayed treatment in serious abdominal and head and neck injuries. However, table four as shown on the left shows a lack of significance to demonstrate a difference between serious or no or low severity head or neck injuries. So essentially this slide is just showing that Patients with serious abdominal injuries uh, benefited from delayed uh, management for a significant reduction in their mortality from 36% with delayed versus 82% with early management. So overall, the authors concluded that early fracture fixation within 12 hours of, of admission had the highest mortality rate but a delayed approach to fixation between 12 to 24 hours or greater than 48 hours resulted in a 50% in-hospital mortality reduction in multi-system trauma patients with femoral shaft fracture. Delayed treatment was especially important in reducing mortality in those with serious abdominal injuries. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll hand it back to you, Matt. Sure. Yeah. And great job. There's some, there's some complex kind of statistics there and, and you did an awesome job um, really summarizing uh, the interplay of everything. And so like, like we were saying, we have now this new or this great paper that tells us, Hey, if we fix things too early, we're increasing risk for mortality. And of note, we're talking, we're talking about patients now, multi-trauma patients with femoral shaft fractures. And so these are people with high ISSs. Um, and then they do a little bit further where they, they look into also, does it matter where we're injured? Does it matter if it's the head? Does it matter if it's the abdomen? Does it matter if it's the chest? Um, and so basically just kind of really expounding and, and, and opening up a lot more information about the, the types of patients that maybe too sick to fix, but we, we were trying to fix everything and maybe we're trying to, we're doing a little bit um, too much and there's a population that is too sick to fix. While researchers were investigating this, um, 
kind of the clinical side, we had a lot of other researchers that were going into the underlying physiologic um, reasons why this might be happening, why patients might be getting uh, too much trauma, and then a surgery on top of that might be causing them extra trouble. And so they, they were doing a lot of basic science research. And rather than go too far into it, there's an excellent uh, review article that's on the OTA website that we're going to go ahead and attempt to uh, summarize fairly succinctly for you here today. Uh, and so next up, we have Olu. Thanks, Matt. My name's Olu. And uh, like he mentioned, we're going to be discussing the review paper by Pallister et al. on the effects of surgical fracture fixation on the systemic inflammatory response to major trauma. <laughs> this paper is, is a bit dense, so there's going to be some throwback to the second year immunology. Um, so buckle up. <laughs> First, the paper lays the foundation for the reader by establishing what um, the two-hit hypothesis is. Firstly, um, talked about the inflammatory response as the first line of defense. And also, as you know, this inflammatory response plays a role in the healing process. For example, after uh, a fracture. But then it goes on to differentiate the response of the inflammatory system in isolated injuries versus in major trauma. So if you have an isolated injury, for example, an isolated distal radius fracture, there's going to be a mild response, typically self-limiting, no real adverse consequences. Whereas if you had a major trauma, there is a lot of tissue damage. You could have hypovolemic shock. You could have also systemic hypoxia. So in the major trauma, all these events like the tissue trauma, the shock, these could act as a primer for the inflammatory system. So this event or this stimulus after the major trauma is called the first hit, quote unquote. So once the first hit has happened, the immune system is primed and any other subsequent events could push it over the edge, so to say. The subsequent events that happen are dubbed the second hit, which normally if you had a second hit event without major trauma could be harmless. But once the inflammatory system is primed and you have that second hit, you could go over the edge and it could lead to ARDS or multi-organ failure. So some of these events that could cause the second hit are surgery, blood loss, or even sepsis sometimes. One thing to note though is that you don't always need a second hit to activate the whole exaggerated inflammatory response. If you have a major trauma and that major trauma is large enough, it can, it can activate the uh, inflammatory response by itself without the second hit going all the way from zero to 100 very quickly. So in summary for, of this slide, uh, the two hits hypothesis, major trauma causes the first hit and if there's a second hit, it could exaggerate the inflammatory response and lead to ARDS, multi-organ failure. So now let's talk about the timeline. So when you have a major trauma, this results in a fairly consistent chain of physiological events. And I'm going to quickly try and summarize it. So you start with tissue hypoxia, which happens with major trauma. And then once this happens, the systemic inflammatory response is activated 
and there is an altered circulating PMN activity. So here's where some of the throwback comes in. If you remember, PMN stands for polymorphonuclear leukocytes. Um, so what these PMNs, once they're circulating in the blood, they then migrate through the endothelium into the interstitium um, in response to pro-inflammatory mediators. Once they migrate, they then are sequestered in target organs. They don't just gather in any organ, they gather as a response to production of certain agents like IL-8. So if, for example, there's injury to the lungs and um, you have circulating PMNs, these PMNs are going to migrate and sequester in the lung in response to the IL-8 that the lung is producing from the trauma. So once the PMNs are in the target organs, for example, in this case, the lungs, they will then degranulate and release their contents. And this is what causes the local damage. So that's, that's a brief summary of the timeline for the inflammatory response. Now, in the timeline we just presented, there are a few major players that were highlighted in the paper, and I'd like to quickly go over them. I'm just going to list them off real quick. And if you're um, following on with the slides, you can pause and read at your own speed. So first of all, IL-6, it's a pro-inflammatory cytokine and systemic levels of this IL-6 has been correlated with the likelihood of developing ARDS and multi-organ failure. L-selectin, which is uh, an adhesion molecule on the PMNs. Um, IL-8, like I mentioned before, it's a local chemotactic factor and it's highly produced in the pulmonary macrophages and is the stimulus. And the stimulus for this production is uh, local hypoxia. So people who have high levels of this typically develop early post-traumatic ARDS. Um, we have CD11B or CD18, which is an integrin. It's an int indicator of traumatic hypervolemic shock. Last but not least, we have the macrophages. And although the macrophages, the resolution of ARDS and MOF or multi-organ failure is not understood, we know that macrophages play some role in the modulation and resolution of the inflammatory response. So that's uh, a quick summary of all the major players that uh, interact in the inflammatory response. So earlier we talked about how surgery can be a second hit trigger. So how does surgery exactly do that? When a patient undergoes surgery, it causes a release of many pro-inflammatory mediators. It also causes a priming of the circulating PMNs and also a depression of monocyte function. For any normal person undergoing surgery, these changes wouldn't typically cause any problems. But in a patient who has had major trauma, some of these changes are linked to ARDS and multi-organ failure. So as orthopedic surgeons, I'm sure you're all wondering how this all applies to, to us. So the paper mentions 
specific instances of how fracture surgery can affect the inflammatory response and also the immune status of a patient. Firstly, a paper by Giannoudis et al. showed that both reamed and unreamed femoral kneeling provokes uh, increase in PMN elastase release. And also the, another paper by Gago et al. showed that femoral kneeling causes a significant PMN priming. So it turns out all the hammering and banging that we do in the OR isn't completely harmless. <laughs> all that ortho activity releases the bone marrow, which uh, acts as a priming agent for the circulating PMNs. So um, from the paper, there are some, some specific situations that we have to pay extra attention to and be more careful when we're dealing with um, events like this. First one is uh, a combination of major trauma or major fracture with visceral injuries, such as a pulmonary contusion. These two events, when put together, seem to have a synergistic effect in the development of early post-traumatic ARDS and multi-organ failure. The next one we have to be careful when dealing with is um, having any major secondary reconstructive surgeries after a major trauma. So if someone has a major trauma, for example, and they have to undergo another surgery, um, it would be prudent to make sure that the patient is properly stabilized because a study of 106 patients with severe trauma indicated that these major secondary reconstructive surgeries like a fixation of the femoral shaft or pelvis or the face performed three or more days after admission precipitated multi-organ failure in about 40 patients when the total number of patients was 106. So just to quickly summarize all that we've discussed so far, it's been a bit dense with information. A quick summary would be that fracture surgery can cause a change in the inflammatory response and could act as a second hit in this two hit hit hypothesis. And so in patients that have a major fracture in combination with visceral injury, you should be careful dealing with them. Also patients who have been insufficiently resuscitated, you should be careful when dealing with them. All right, that brings me to the end of this paper. I'm gonna pass it back to Matt to do a quick summary of everything. All right, yeah, thank you. That's a lot, like you're saying, a lot of dense information and you really boiled that down. That was, that was a really great summary of, of what's going on and how surgery creates this kind of second hit. And so we're finishing today with uh, another review article, and this is uh, kind of a culmination of all the information that we've, we've reviewed thus far. We've identified there's patients that are at risk uh, for increased mortality when they're fixed too close to their injury. We've talked about the physiology that is underlying a little bit why there is a second hit. And this is a review article where a group of leaders in the field, these are some, uh, some of the, the, the absolute leaders of the orthopedic uh, traumatology um, that were looking into this at the time. And they basically wanted to put together a picture of how can we look at a patient, how can we evaluate a patient and determine who is too sick to fix, who is uh, ready for fixation and who might benefit from a temporizing uh, fixation with an X fix and then come back for definitive fixation later. 
And they basically are looking to give us parameters that we can look at and evaluate in order to determine who those patient populations are. So what they did is they separated patients into four groups. One, stable, well, they're, they're ready to go. Four, an extremist, they're acutely life-threatening. So of course we do life-saving life surgeries, but we wanna get out of the operating room as soon as possible. So we do something like an external fixator. And then there's the middle groups, so those borderline and unstable. And they de determine between the two, unstable are folks with cardiovascular instability, which is the broadly defined systolic less than uh, 90 mil, uh, millimeters of mercury. So we know that it's someone in shock. Um, and then borderline is uncertain. Someone who doesn't look super stable, but they're not really unstable. We're just kind of, you know, we're not sure about them. We wanna make sure that we're keeping a close eye. Then we'll talk about what we're keeping a close eye on here next. In order to determine if they were in groups one, two, three, or four, they used four categories of criteria to assign each group. They looked at values that told us about hyperperfusion status, about coagulation, about hypothermia, which you recognize as the uh, triad of death for trauma, as well as they added on the soft tissue injury, which we could broadly think of as the risk of a second hit. And the patient needed to have three out of four in each category. So you'll see, we'll, we'll talk about it here in a, in a second. They assigned values of blood pressure units, lactate levels, base deficits, platelet counts, coagulation factor, temperature. And they looked at those and each patient will fall into either one, two, three, or four for each of these categories. And if they were in stable for three of four categories, they'd be a stable patient. If they were in extremis for three of four categories, they'd be an extremis. And we'll look at that a little bit more deeply here. Mm. So taking a look, this is the flowchart they have. Uh, that's just really talking about um, if we can fix these people or how do we evaluate if they're ready or not. You'll notice that stable patients aren't even on this because we'll go ahead and proceed with IM nailing for stable patients. Um, but if they're either borderline or unstable, we are basically, we're, we're assessing them. We're seeing if they're continuing to look stable or more stable. And if there's favorable conditions, we'll go ahead and do IM nailing. And if it's unfavorable, unfavorable, we'll go to provisional external fixation. And then once again, we're looking at all of those uh, values. And now we're gonna take a look at a really big chart that really talks about all of those values. So this is a little bit um, overwhelming when you first look at it. So let's break it down. First along the top, we have the patient status, either stable, borderline, unstable, or an extremis. On the left side, we have our, tra our triad of death of trauma, the shock, coagulation, and temperature, plus the degree of soft tissue injury or the risk of second hit. So taking a look at the shock values, it's just our classic shock values. If we look at the blood pressure, right? So less than 90 being our mark to make it someone unstable. The blood units given, the more blood units means they're more likely to be um, in having significant hypotension. The lactate levels, and of note, they use 2.5 as the cutoff here of between unstable and borderline. 2.5 of lactate has been widely accepted as a sign of occult hypotension and basically a way of being able to look at the perfusion of our organs. And if we have a lactate of greater than 2.5, it's considered to be a sign of hypotension. And then also the base deficit, similar um, 
delineation between unstable and extremists. And then our classic ATLS classifications, which we're very familiar with. One, two to three, three to four, and of course, four. And then for coagulation, we look at um, the various uh, coagulation labs that we get. And then the temperature, of course, is self-explanatory. So that brings us to, okay, what are the labs that are important to evaluate resuscitation? What are the what labs that we order on our patients as we're getting ready to take them to the operating room? That's our lactate, our ABG, and our coax. That's what we're looking to be able to see what the status of our patient is, if they're stable, borderline, unstable, or an extremist. And then finally, we have our soft tissue injuries. We want to make sure that we're looking at um, the, the AIS score, the ISS score, and then also, in particular, focusing on the lungs, there's a focus on the PaO2 and the FiO2 ratio with significance being between 300, being between borderline and unstable. Um, this mirrors in the literature where a lot of times 250 is used as a big cutoff. Um, so we need to make sure that we're looking at vent settings in order to tell us what the soft tissue injuries or the risk for second hit is, as well as the associated injuries to the chest, abdomen, pelvis, and what those AIS scores, as well as some of these other um, trauma scores that have been developed over time. And so between those, and once again, if you have three out of four in the borderline category, you're a borderline patient, or three out of four in the unstable category, you're an unstable patient. So it's important to note that we need to make sure that we are constantly reevaluating our patient status. This is not a one-time, okay, this patient is a borderline patient, we can proceed, um, they're looking pretty good before surgery. We need to be checking in with our anesthesia colleagues after we finish doing one thing and as we're preparing to move to the next. And even while we're addressing fractures in the midst, we wanna make sure that we're limiting our surgery to less than two hours to prevent uh, hypotension, as well as this ongoing stress to the body. We need to be checking once again with our anesthesia colleagues, making sure that there's no coagulopathy or there's no change in the vent settings and that they're not requiring a lot of different fluids and blood as uh, if our anesthesia colleagues are having to really do a lot of work to help stabilize this person, then maybe we need to make sure that we're getting out of the operating room, doing some uh, temporizing fixation, rather definitive fixation, doing an X-fix and getting out of there. Um, it's a very complex interplay of all the different things that we've been talking about before, but through this review paper, that we have uh, some discrete sets of labs that we can look at, as well as considerations of patient presentation that help us decide, hey, is this person ready for definitive fixation or if they are too sick to fix and at risk for second hit. Uh, so definitely recommend if you, if you can, just go back and pause and review that, that um, slide from the, the previous slide with the big table on it and just make sure that you're kind of understanding why and, and where they're drawing the lines between uh, each, of those, each of those groups, because this is really is a continuum that we decide uh, how we are going to address the patient in the operating room as they're, as they're getting addressed for other injuries or as we're preparing to either do a temporary fixation or, or definitive. So let's look at a summary of our entire, our entire journey here over the course of the past four papers. We found out that, that trauma patients, they do better the earlier we fix them. They're able to mobilize, they're able to sit up, they're able to breathe better. You have less ICU days once they are fixed. 
except there's a group of patients that, that they really don't, you know, we need to make sure that they're at risk for second hit. They, if they have a severe injury, we're fixing them too soon. If they have lots of associated injuries, we looked into what might be underlying it, the, the inflammatory priming followed by a second hit, because we, you know, we're, we're a little bit rough in there sometimes as we're trying to get, uh, trying to get the correct fixation. Then we were able to identify different groups of people who are too sick to fix, basically considering the triad of death and then adding on the risk of secondary hit with associated injury and pulmonary function. Hope you're able to get some, uh, some good information from this. Hopefully we didn't put you to sleep. I know uh, Journal Club and talking about articles isn't always the most exciting thing, but here we have uh, four kind of foundational articles that are good to be familiar with and hopefully this was a little bit faster than diving in and reading them all in detail yourselves. But uh, thanks for coming out. And again, all please do not forget to check out today's sponsor for our podcast episode, Convey MD, the medical podcast just for medical podcasts. And you can go and check out some of our show notes on there. And the link to Convey MD is in the description. Please go ahead and hit the subscribe button as well. Let us know how much you like this episode, and we will see you next time.